This program is rated D for dog. It contains sniffing, scratching and doggy themes. Hello and welcome to the Top Dog Podcast. My name is Adrian Plitzko. There are people out there who do amazing things with or for dogs and the ones who live with them. And we will meet some of them today. Like Diana Scott, founder and director of the dog food company Frontier Pets. She claims that your dog can change the world with the help of her unique business model that not only is of benefit to your dog's health, but also to local farmers and the environment. We go to a park where Ruby and Daniel sit down on a picnic blanket with their top dog, Ayla. Whilst Ruby and Daniel enjoy a nice fresh salad, Isla is busily licking peanut butter out of a Kong toy. But Isla has, as Ruby will tell us, also developed a taste for smelly socks. Has it ever happened to you that after your dog did its business and you wanted to collect it, you were just not able to spot it? There was too much other stuff on the ground like leaves or pebbles and you just could not find the poo. Well, finally, there is help on the way with the new book. Its appropriate title, Find the Poo. We'll be talking to the author, Joe Schillett. And in today's episode of the audiobook Pirate the Barking Kookaburra, Pirate is having another encounter with the nasty kookaburras who pretend to teach him how to fly. She started her business in Australia about three years ago with around 80 customers. It has grown since and she's serving now 8,000 plus customers. The numbers are still growing. Her name is Diana Scott. She's the founder and director of Frontier Pets, dog food that is free range and ethically sourced directly from Australian farmers. But what is most striking is that Diana Scott claims that your dog can change the world. Diana Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. Diana, what makes your dog food so special and so unique compared to other commercial dog food that you buy at the supermarket? There's, there's two reasons. Firstly, the food itself, the ingredients are sourced from free-range and ethical suppliers. So we have a beef food, a chicken and a pork, and they all come from free-range farms. So that's unheard of to have those free-range ingredients. It also contains free-range eggs and organic fruit and vegetables. So everything that we source comes from uh, high welfare sources. So whilst that's very, very good for animal welfare and, and that's an, obviously an important distinction, also these products are much healthier. So there's twice as much vitamin D in a free range egg versus a cage egg for example. So the quality of the ingredients are very high. So that differentiates us. And the other thing that we do, which is very different, is that our food is freeze-dried. 
And what that means is that we take raw ingredients, we form it all into a almost like a hamburger mix, and then we make little pellets out of that, and then we freeze them. So it's a raw frozen pellet, and we put it into this very expensive machine called a freeze dryer. And what the freeze dryer does is it takes the water out of the food. So you end up with a very light, dry product with all of the nutritional content and all of the calories are in the dry pellet that's left. So you can just store this then in your cupboard. It's really easy to store. It was, it's, it's got its own uh, preservative because it won't go off. There's no water in it, so it can't get bacteria in there. So, it, so when you feed your puppy, you just literally add water to the food and it reconstitutes it to its original raw form. So you've got these two things working together. You've got incredibly superior ingredients and you've got a process that enables you to feed your dog raw food without any of the hassles of raw food. You are an Australian business, so it's unique to Australia, I would say. Is it unique worldwide or do you know any other business that does a similar thing? There are, freeze drying itself is not a unique process. It's not well known of here in Australia. It is in New Zealand. They seem to have uh, surpassed us in that kind of technology. And it certainly is in America. So uh, freeze drying, your, your two minute noodles, uh, coffee, uh, dried baby food is freeze dried. So the actual process itself is not unique to us, but the combination of the freeze-dried produce and 100% ethically sourced ingredients, to my knowledge, is a world first. I haven't been able to find anything anywhere that combines those two. And there's more to that. There's a unique business model behind it as well. How does that one look like? Yes. So we sell directly to customers online. So we most dog food or really the predominant amount of uh, dog food manufacturers sell their food through uh, outlets, through retail outlets. Uh, we do sell through a few vets who have approached us to sell the food that way uh, because, it, because it's so good. But uh, predominantly, you know, 99% of our business is direct to the customer. So we actually do everything here. So we source all of the ingredients directly from farmers. They arrive at our manufacturing facility. We're based in Evans Head in northern New South Wales. We manufacture here. And then we pack and ship from here as well. So everything is contained within that one environment, if you like. So it's very unique in the sense that, uh, you know, and people can subscribe. So they get, so they work out that their dog goes through so much food every month or every, every couple of months. And then that food just automatically gets delivered to them. So it's extremely convenient. Uh, and you don't have that middleman there so yes that's very that's a very different way for a manufacturer to sell the other question is uh, how easy or difficult was it actually to take a, a foothold in the in the pet industry in a four billion dollar pet industry in australia was it hard or easy how did you do it 
<laughs> it was a bit of both, Adrian, actually. Uh, the uh, the industry, as you say, is is a very mature one. It's that means that there's lots and lots of different products around. It doesn't mean that there's lots of different companies around. The biggest uh, manufacturers of pet food are Mars and Nestle, and they have most of the brands that sit under them. Uh, and they're, they're, of course, big advertisers and they're well established. So in that sense, getting that kind of cut through uh, from a competitive sense is difficult, is challenging, but in another way it was actually quite easy because firstly, as you say, we've got this unique business model that we sell directly to consumers. So rather than uh, sell through a retail store where the retail store talks to the consumers, we talk to the consumers. And uh, the consumer was ready for this product, so ready for this product. There are so many issues, health issues with dogs these days, so many of them, mainly digestive and skin problems, and that's created by feeding the wrong food, dried food. So people are becoming more and more aware of that and they're feeding raw. The problem with feeding raw is that it's messy, uh, it takes up all your freezer space, you've got to remember to defrost before you feed, all that kind of thing. So here we did, we came in and solved a problem for people. We're saying you can feed raw but it's very convenient and the nutritional value of the food is, is, so, is off the charts, it's so good. So the easy part was to actually say that, get that message out. And then what happened is that uh, the consumer, the customers started to talk about us. And the more they talked, the more customers we got. So we grew very quickly, very quickly. And that's because, and that's not us doing a lot of heavy marketing. It's the consumer saying, finally, there's a product that will fix my dog's skin condition. That's very easy for me to do. So, so the easy part is that the consumers are providing our marketing for us, if you like. Uh, the challenging part was actually doing it, getting it together. I, I had this ridiculous dream, Adrian. I said to my husband, oh, it'll take me three months and maybe around 50 grand to get this off the off the ground it's taken years and a and a lot of money a lot our house is in it everything's in it so that's hard that that's hard to make those kind of sacrifices when you don't know about the customer um, acceptance and all that kind of thing so it was a bit of a double-edged edged sword uh fortunately for us uh it's working <laughs> which is great now we know that some of these uh, pet food producers, manufacturers are big, big companies, worldwide companies. Are they trying to sort of throw a spanner into your work every now and then? Uh, not, not really. There's a couple of smaller companies, that, more of the niche companies that are, that are uh, getting into a competitive type of environment. No, the big companies aren't. And the reason they're not is that they have a completely different a method of operation. So their, their um, objectives are to make cheap food. Doesn't mean that I'm not saying that they're bad people. I'm, I want to make that quite clear. But their, their objective is to make cheap food. So we we don't make cheap food. We make affordable food, but it's not 
it's not in the same hemisphere as them. And really, if, if we took just 1% of the market, it's it's not it, it would be nothing to them it would be you know that the big companies as we've said the mars and the nestle they are their 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 pet food portfolio would generate hundreds of billions of dollars of income for them so we would be nothing <laughs> we would not we wouldn't even get a look in i don't think but having said that if they this question's been asked before about competitiveness and, and our vision at Frontier Pets is to, is to end factory farming, is to get animals out of cages. And if other pet food companies followed suit and created ethical food, I would think that that would be fabulous. I was just about to come to that one because when I look at your website, which is frontierpets.com.au, by the way, uh, I'm really impressed by the slogans that you just throw around uh, on that website. Ethical products for a better world. Your dog can change the world and you want to end factory farming. They're big, big slogans, big statements too. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yes, and I know they're big statements. I know that our vision is to end factory farming. Now, that is a huge statement to make because factory farming is well and truly embedded in the world, So, and it's a juggernaut. To, to steer that, to change that would be a, a massive task. But the way I feel about it is that Let's take an industry, when I was thinking about all this, let's take an industry that uses a lot of factory farmed produce and that's the pet food industry. So if we can make changes to that, we can have some more of a significant inroads than just customer uh, education. So that's where this comes from, this whole, um, you know, we can change the world and, and it's, it's really your dog can change the world. We're about to launch a cat food, so your cat can change the world as well. So it literally is. It's, it is about our, our pets, our companion animals, leading the charge on making these kind of significant changes. So that's, and I know they're, I, I know they're big statements. Now, why is factory farming so bad and why is ethical farming better? Okay, so factory farming is, just to put this into context, it's where we cram lots and lots of animals into small spaces. So you've seen images of uh, cage eggs, you know, where the hens are all, uh, all crushed together. Uh, it, it's bad because hens, for example, need room to move. They, they scratch around. So what we're doing is taking away their natural behaviour, and that causes an extreme amount of stress. So it's the same with pigs. With our, with our factory-farmed pigs, they are in uh, small stalls and they just keep getting impregnated all the time. So they get impregnated, they have the babies, the babies are taken away from the impregnated, have their babies. So it, it, it's animal cruelty at its it, a most extraordinary level. And it also, I mean, I could go on forever and I certainly won't, I won't do that, but uh, it destroys the planet because you've got lots and lots of animals defecating in a small piece of land. So it goes into the water table, all of these things. It's massive, massive um, environmental as well as animal welfare issue. 
So ethical farming is taking out, or free-range farming is taking these animals out of these cages and let them roam as they would do freely. So, uh, the, so the chickens can scratch around. They're let outside and they can roam around outside and they can scratch around, they can perch, all of those kind of things, spread their wings, all of that kind of thing. So, of course, it's better. It would be the same as putting your dog or your cat into a small cage 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Of course, there's a there's a benefit to that. And there's an environmental benefit to that as well because of all the reasons I've just really just touched on. Uh, we can, this is the thing that uh, a lot of people don't understand, and I certainly didn't until I started looking at it, is that we can raise more free-range animals in less space than we can the factory-farmed animals. So, um, and the reason for this is that we put factory farm animals into a small space. So, and, but we need a massive amount of land to grow grain to feed the factory farmed animals. And these are actually called ghost acres. So for every 100,000 animals that we put into a small space, we need uh, 14 times that much to grow the grain to feed the animals. So we've got a clear, that's not just available farming land, we've got to clear hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hectares of land to grow the grain to feed the animals. So the the whole premise of factory farming is wrong and, it's, and, um, and of course, the alternative is to let them roam around freely, eat what they're supposed to eat and have this as a regenerative process rather than a destructive one. But isn't Australia, compared to other countries, in a, let's say, unique position with the vast amount of land where cows can graze free range? And in that regard, if the dog food is manufactured in Australia, it is automatically an ethical product. Can you say that? No, absolutely not. So uh, we have 500 million factory farmed animals in Australia. 500 million. So uh, when you actually drive around the countryside, you will notice, now that I've put this in your head, you will notice the lack of cows out in, in fields. It's because they're being put into feedlots. So they're trying, again, it's this whole premise of getting feeding the world by putting more and more and more animals into smaller spaces. So, yes, we have the land. Yes, we have the ability to do this. We could fit 55 billion chickens free range in the space of a third the size of Tasmania. So we could do that, but instead they, they cram them into smaller spaces. So no, the only thing, the only animal that's completely free range in Australia are sheep. The rest of them are, the majority of them are factory farmed. Now my last question, and we come to the cost of your pet food or dog food. Uh, in the eyes of the of the average consumer, I'm talking about the owner of a dog, uh, it looks very expensive. Uh, so how can you justify that? Why is it so expensive compared to commercial food? Yeah. So firstly, let me put this price into context because people do look at the website and they go, oh, it's going to cost me $50 a kilo. It doesn't cost $50 a kilo because one kilo of food makes four kilos. Uh, 
So you're adding water back into the food. So it actually costs around $13 a kilo, which makes it cheaper than raw feeding and premium kibbles. So it's actually not expensive in that sense. A medium-sized dog, so about a 20-kilo dog, will cost you about $3 a meal. So it's not expensive. It seems like it's expensive, but it's not expensive. But, yes, compared to a $5 a kilo kibble that you can buy in the supermarket, yes, it's a lot more expensive than that. But if you feed your dog a $5 kibble from a supermarket, you will be at the vet's all the time with your dog having skin problems and it will die earlier. One in three companion animals will get cancer in their lifetime and that's directly attributed to their food. So it's a huge, huge problem. So I would say that um, firstly, it's not that expensive and secondly, for $3 a meal for a medium sized dog, I've got a small dog, cost 50 cents a meal. So uh, for $3 a meal, you've got a dog that's going to be happy and healthy for the duration of its life. Diana Scott, founder and director of Frontier Pets. If you'd like to find out more about her business and products, go onto the website frontierpets.com.au. Ayla is a German Collie Cross Kelpie. Her owners, Ruby and Daniel, rescued her about two years ago and they haven't regretted it since. Not only is Ayla a lovely dog, she absolutely is Ruby and Daniel's top dog. She was in Gilgandra Council, just a pound dog, and um, saw her story on petrescue.com.au and decided to, yeah, to get her. was very busy. What is she yeah. doing here? So she's got a Kong, which we try to distract her by putting peanut butter, which they all love dogs, and yeah. some um, some treats in there. So that keeps her a bit occupied, I guess. But yeah, she's not a nervous dog, but she's quite quite agile or, or active. Very active. Yeah. So we try to keep her quite active, I guess. Like she plays with the frisbee. She's really good at catch, catching the frisbee when we throw it. Um, and yeah, I think the working dog in her makes her very sort of fit and active, always yeah. looking for something to do. And yeah, and yeah. So did you consciously choose an active dog? Did, did you know about that kind of dogs that they need a lot of exercise? Um, correct. I think we always wanted a dog that is very active. We've had a dog previously that was a German Shepherd Cross Beagle, very active as well. Mm. And we love to just go to the park and sort of, yeah, just always be there on a Saturday spending half of our day about a dog. So it was sort of, we had to get a dog that was just as active. Does she listen to your commands? She does. She knows <laughs> quite a few tricks. Um, she can even play dead. 
so on command and she can stand on her two legs on command so she knows quite a few tricks actually okay so, now we yeah, can't prove it listen. we can't prove it because it's only audio there's no <laughs> yeah, yeah. unfortunately and, i can't prove it to you but yeah. yeah no she is pretty good and she's very obedient and very um she does understand command pretty well yeah so, and yeah. she wouldn't do the tricks now because she's still busy she's licking the busy. <laughs> peanut butter so yeah. how come she knows tricks did you teach them or? i taught her actually and yeah. same with my previous dog i i think it's a me being at home all the time because i work from home so having the dog with me makes it sort of yeah just a distraction and i started sort of trying things and it worked and i could sort of sense or i'm quite in tune whenever they, i can see a movement i sort of go for it and teach that as a movement if that makes sense so if i saw she sort of stood up on her two legs i just went oh stand and and i kind of go with what the dog wants i don't enforce anything it's all natural uh, from what they've done and sort of built yeah. from that and how long does she stand on her hind legs hind oh. legs i assume not not a handstand <laughs> no. she'll stand for <laughs> yeah a couple of seconds or two but so long as you're holding a treat she probably would do it for a bit longer yeah. but yeah there's a, a German word for that one. It's called Menschen, which means little man. Ah. <laughs> that, that kind of command. Yeah. And uh, play dead, you taught her that as well? Correct. I've yeah. taught her. I taught my previous dog, so it was only normal for me to give it a try with Isla as well. And again, when I saw her lying on her side one time, I just sort of went with that flow of then saying, you know, making the sound and sort of making her associated. Mm. So. It was yeah. as nice as Isla seems to be more i'm sure she is but has she done any anything naughty um yeah i think when we just uh, got her she was about four months at the time and she's had a few times when she's been a bit naughty and ripping things um but we're lucky enough that it stopped pretty quickly as well and she's not she's not as such i mean we can leave her at home oh it's okay as much as she's um yeah, she's very intelligent. I mean, she's very active, but if we leave her at home, we can leave her and she's not mm. she's not naughty or anything. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. Right. as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's yeah. her little cheekiness. She does always um, pick socks. Whenever the sock drawer will be open, she'll take one and run away with it. <laughs> so that's one okay. of her cheekiness. And clean and dirty. Yeah, yeah, yeah clean and dirty. Yeah, um, but she's that will be the the only sort of cheeky thing she does. Yeah. Well, Isla, it was nice to meet you. You didn't look at me. This is too busy. <laughs> Peanut butter is much Thanks more interesting. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very Thank much, you. idiot. That was Ruby and Daniel with their top dog Isla, a German collie cross Kelpie. As you might have heard, I met them in the park with lots of other dogs. Speaking of park, has it ever happened to you after your dog did its business, you standing by patiently, being the responsible dog owner you are, already holding the rolled up plastic bag in your hand and bending over in order to pick up the processed material, that you simply could not find the poo. Well, you are not the only one. And this is the moment when Joe Schillit is stepping in. He is an illustrator, designer and advertising director in Toronto and the author of the book Find the Poo, without worrying where you step. Joe Schillit, 
welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, the time. Find the Pooh. It's a book in the style of Wes Waldo. Is that right? Or please tell us what this book is all about. Well, well, Where's Waldo is uh, certainly a, a book I'm familiar with. In fact, I read that to my children and found it very fascinating. So if, it, if it's in that league, then, then I take that as a real compliment. So where's Waldo is the idea of trying to find little Waldo character in, a, in a, a very complicated illustration. Mine is a little bit different. Uh, I'll take you back to, to, the, to the origination. I'm, I'm walking my dog in the fall a couple, maybe two or three falls ago. Uh, fall meaning autumn, lots of leaves on the ground, spectacular type of uh, scene just in front of your feet or wherever, maybe 10 or 20 feet away. Dog's on a leash, and uh, my dog goes to take his, his little business. And uh, and I thought I knew where it was, but I when I went to, to go get it, to approach it, I just couldn't find it. It was, like, lost in the leaves. Yet I knew that there was this beautiful, uh, you know, texture on the ground. The leaves are all very colorful. You know, so it's a very beautiful time of year, and uh, it was a beautiful photograph, yet I knew somewhere in the photograph there was this piece of little dog business. And uh, so without uh, trying to spoil the photograph, I, t- I took a photo of, of where I thought the, the, the business was and took that home and put it on my computer and uh, had a search, and there it was. And that was kind of the the birth of the idea, so we're... Where Where's Waldo is a little bit more illustrated. This is uh, photographically real. All the all the scenes are are, are real time, uh, no retouching, and they're all very texturalized. You know, there's leaves, there's stones, there's gravel, there's all sorts of things, elements that uh, can interfere sometimes with with where the dog has done his business. So the challenge is is to find this piece of business in each photograph. And I actually uh, uh, gave the answers in the back of the book, too, so I didn't want to frustrate people too much. So that's kind of the uh, the overall gist. They're not just uh, photographs. They're actually beautiful photographs, as you said. They show natural things on the ground, like dried leaves, little plants, grass or mushrooms. And somewhere in between, you have to recognize or find that little bit of poo. And you can uh, assure us that these photos are not arranged. They're really authentic. They sort of snapshots. They're all they're all authentic. I, I remember being out there many many a morning. The morning light seemed to be the most uh, the best for for actually uh, shooting something like this. And uh, I was kicked off a few lawns. Hey, what are you doing on my lawn? So I'd have to say, well, I'm just I'm admiring your garden, which I was. So yes, there was a lot of aspects of that went into each photograph to make sure that that each one is consistent. Um, that they're they're challenging but not too challenging, and there's uh, you know kind of different graphics in each one. I didn't want each photograph to be a total repetition of the other. So some I have leaves, some I have mushrooms, some I have wood chips, some I have gravel, but they're all you know totally realistic, and and those are all actual places that my dog does his business. It is a picture book. It's actually a gaming book, you can say. So can you play? Well, you could. You can, I've heard of people actually, uh, you know, challenging themselves to uh, to find the poo. Uh, so you, it is. Uh, it's kind of like a like like a visual uh, search uh, book. Uh, so it, it seems to appeal to various target audiences. One is people who like these visual challenges. Two would be. Uh, 
nature lovers because I, I was really careful in making sure that each photograph had its own, you know, design and, and, and uh, you know, it was, it was a nice-looking photograph. And uh, so dog lovers, nature lovers, people that like quizzes, and, and kids. Because kids at a certain stage as they're growing up, they all like the idea of poo. Right. So how should I play this game? Let's say I'm uh, in a family situation. We all look at the book. So how do we play that game? Okay. Well, you just open it up uh, and, and you know, you open up to a photograph and you <laughs> say, can you find where the poo is in the, in the photograph? And you pass the book around. Uh, that's what I remember in testing the concept out. I, I, I had the, the shots on a camera and I went to a party and just began to expose the idea to some people and just say, listen, can you, can you find the poo in this photograph? And I thought, you know, maybe the reaction is going to be that great. Maybe they're going to say, Joe, what are you doing, et cetera. And people were very positive about what, you know, like they're grabbing the camera and saying, oh, I can find it. I can find it. Let me try and find it. So, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, very much a, a quiz. It's a challenge. But I, I saw in, in having the idea germinate and gel and, 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 and you know, formulating it, uh, that it, it, it did certainly have some merit and have some, have some uh, interesting appeal to a wide target audience. So you actually leave the reader in the dark. Is there a page with uh, the solution, or do you give any hints? Yes, yeah, so in, in the back, there's about four or five pages that are dedicated uh, to giving the answers. So what I did was I converted each photograph. Each photograph is in color. So I converted each photograph into more of a black-and-white illustration to kind of simplify the answer. And, and within the context of each black-and-white uh, photo now, is uh, is a is an uh, an outline as to where the actual poo is in red, so uh, you know you can actually see where it is, and 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 you could either congratulate yourself or 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 pass it on to the next person for them to find it. I guess every uh, owner of a small dog or a mid-sized dog can find themselves in this book because it is sometimes really hard to find the poo, especially when it's dark or uh, late in the evening. So you want to have fun with that book, but is the aim as well that you want to sort of hone or sharpen the dog owner's detective eyes? You want to give him a bit of a hand? Well, well, yes. I mean, it it, it could, you know, again, depending on sales, it could could evolve into other mediums. So, uh, you know, this is kind of a, the launch year of it, and we'll, we'll certainly see where it develops. I know in taking all the photographs, I certainly have a lot more than what, is, what has been published, so hopefully they might be able to see the light of day in, uh, in another uh, edition, be it Poo 2 or Poo 3. Now, we probably know what it's like to produce a book. You have to have the idea first, and then you have fun writing it or or taking the photographs and then you find someone who, who uh, publishes it for you or prints it for you but then comes the marketing side and there you have a concept you don't call your book a best seller you call it a best smeller it was that your idea <laughs> yeah hmm. so yeah we um it, it it is very challenging i mean i you know if, uh, i guess if, if i kind of knew the business i was stepping into i may not have stepped into it but marketing just getting a book out there is very, very tough. Uh, getting a book that interests people is even tougher, but it's 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 really a, a challenge, and you have to... What I found, because of my marketing and advertising background, I guess I was a step up on people, being able to 
put ideas together and try to sell them to a client. That's the business I'm in. So I kind of knew how to how to make things look good. I knew my, my book was, it had to be hardcover. It had to be hardcover. Each page had to actually be a, a cardboard, too. So it's almost like a children's book. The main character in the book is your own dog, Farfel. And uh, previous to our talk now, you told me that Farfel, in the meantime, has sadly passed away. Do you, yes. con do you consider yeah. this book more or less as a legacy to Farfel? Well, yeah, you know, uh, uh, the legacy to Farfel is, is certainly the, the, mem the wonderful memories I have of him as a dog. He was just a, a wonderful companion. Uh, almost like your your best friend, if not your best friend. And, uh, you know, we go for walks three or four times a day, as I'm sure you've experienced. And uh, in, in honor I, in honor to, to our relationship, I, mean, I can say I've, I've had this book, which is a dedication to him. And at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm still pursuing all the walks that I did with him every morning. I'm still out there walking, walking the walk and, and, and talking the talk as if he was beside me. So... He still is very much in my in my blood and is very much the essence of this book. Well, but he did bring out his name to the world and um, we are very thankful for that. And uh, Farfel is giving a lot of readers a lot of fun and joy, I'm sure. Now, Van der Poo showcases a piece of, of small or mid-sized dogs, or Farfel was sort of a mid-sized dog. Now, could you imagine to produce a sequel to that book uh, that showcases large breeds? And if yes, what would that book look like? Well, um, maybe it'd be <laughs> if it's if it's for larger books and for larger dogs, and it has to be what I call a coffee table book, right. <laughs> something that's actually bigger. Uh, and uh, but yeah, I mean, all, all those things are are are, are possibilities. But I, I know that, you know, I, I didn't want the book to be gross. So, you know, everything has to be very tasteful. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, maybe the smaller dogs or the mid-sized dogs are, the, are, are kind of the, the embodiment of the book because a larger dog does make something that is a little bit more visual, and a little bit more, um, you know, uh, it's kind of in your face. And I didn't want it to be in your face. But that. You know, again, it's all going to be based on on public reaction and and and, and how the, and the acceptance of the book. And it is a very tasteful book, and as I said now a few times, it does give you a lot of fun and a lot of joy to look at it and play it with your friends or family. So, Shilad, many many thanks for your time, and uh, you've you even have a website fightthepoo.com where you have m much more information about that book and uh, everybody can sort of uh, get a taste of what to expect if you bought that book well I thank you very much Adrian for your uh, for the time I, I, I thank you for your patience and uh, yeah the book is out there in your part of the world I know it's on Amazon and it's, it's really taking off much, much to my delight and much to uh, Much to Farfel's delight. Right. All I can so, say is just uh, follow your nose and you'll find it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. For sure. Ciao, Shilid. Thank you very Many much, children. Time for a new episode of the audiobook Pirate the Barking Kookaburra. We are up to chapter 10. What do we know so far? 
pirate is a lost bird popping up one day in the backyard where the dog Stelzi lives. Her friends, two other dogs, Ajax and Hoover, and the cat Buddha are wondering where pirate comes from. In the hope to trigger his memory, they take him to different places. Unfortunately, that doesn't work. The dogs and the cat decide that pirate stays with them. Pirate embraces his new life as a member of a pack, but an encounter with other kookaburras leaves him confused and sad. He realizes that he's not a dog and at the same time not a real bird, because he can't laugh as kookaburras normally do. The dogs take him to laughing school, with the result that Pirate ends up barking like a dog. Unfortunately, not a desirable skill as it turns out when he again bumps into the nasty kookaburras. Next morning, just before the sun rose, Pirate jumped out of bed. The dogs and Buddha were still asleep, exhausted from last night's party. Pirate went back to the classroom straight away. He sat down at his desk and practised barking. Woof, 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 woof. It went quite well. It sounded as if it came out of a dog's throat. Admittedly a tiny dog, but it didn't matter. Pirate was happy and relieved that he'd finally got rid of the wimpy, screechy squeak the kid kookaburras had teased him about. Now he could laugh like a real dog. Would the kookaburras be pleased about it, he asked himself. What if they still made fun of him? Pirate started to worry that they might push him over again. Now he wished that he was a real dog. A huge, strong and frightening dog that growls at them and gets them terribly scared. Suddenly, Pirate had an idea. Next time, when the kookaburras teased him, he would be growling at them. He started practising. It was not a scary growl yet. It still sounded as if millions of tiny bubbles were whirling round his throat. Not even the tiniest fly would be scared by it. Well, 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 a voice said all of a sudden. Pirate turned round. Right in front of him was Tiger the snake. Do you have a sore throat? No. Why do you gurgle then? I'm not gurgling, I'm growling. There was a big grin on Tiger's face. She drew herself up until her head was high enough to stare into Pirate's eyes. Oh, I'm so scared. <laughs> you are the most frightening kookaburra I have ever come across. Or should I say, dog? Without a sound... Her long body glided slowly around Pirate, while her head seemed to stay in the same place. 
her silky black eyes grew bigger and started to suck Pirate in like a vacuum cleaner. I can't play with you now. I'm at school, in the classroom, in the middle of a lesson. Tiger's head started to sway. Nonsense. This is not the right school for you. Come with me. Come to my pirate school. A pirate school? Pirate could not help himself. His body followed Tiger's movements. Is it a real pirate school for pirates? I can't go to the pirate school. Not now. I need to practice growling, but... He could hardly open his beak and he could no longer move. Captured by Tiger's black and bottomless eyes, his desire to fall into them grew bigger and bigger. Come with me. Tiger repeated in the most soft and soothing voice. But Pirate's urge to practice his growling was bigger than any other feeling, and he was a bit annoyed too, if not angry, that Tiger tried to pull him away from the classroom. With all his might, he opened his beak and started to growl at her, wanting to shoo her away. But all that came out was... But funnily enough, it seemed to work. Tiger got a fright. Her jaw dropped. Her eyes wide open, now branded by sheer pain, she let out a silent scream. At the same time, a little kookaburra shouted, I've got her! Tiger's tail was lodged in his beak. Before she was even able to yell at him, he pulled her up straight into the air. Bring her up here! The kid kookaburras shouted, sitting in the gum tree. The little kookaburra feverishly flapped his wings, slowly gaining height like an overloaded helicopter. Tiger was wriggling and writhing like a worm pierced on a hook. Finally, she regained her voice and shouted, Let go, you stupid little... Get her up here! The kid kookaburras in the tree cheered him on. The little kookaburra said, and before the other kookaburras could rush to his aid, he let go of Tiger. She shot back to the ground and landed in front of Pirate. I'll get you one day. Everywhere you go, everything you do, I'll be watching you. I'll be following you. That's my promise. Like a stray bullet, she whizzed past Pirate, around the logs of the classroom, and escaped into the high grass. Why didn't you catch her? scolded the kookaburras. Pirate was confused. He had no idea what the kookaburras were on about. But he understood that in their eyes he had done something wrong. That was most unfortunate. Of course, now they really had good reason to be angry with him and punish him. That's what kookaburras do, the big kookaburra said. We catch snakes, we grab their tails, pull them up and drop them onto a rock. But how would you know? You are only a stupid parrot. He slowly walked around Pirate. His anger showed that he was thinking of some form of punishment. 
You owe us, you know. You owe us, Big. I can laugh now. Can you? I learnt it yesterday. Well, why don't you show us? Tell him a joke. Yes, tell him the joke about the sick bird. That'll make him laugh. It's the best joke ever. Here we go. Listen. What do you give a sick bird? I'm not sure. Treatment. An unbearable silence filled the air. Pirate liked the joke. He thought it was a funny one, and he would have laughed about it at any other time. But now he was scared. Still, he must laugh. He breathed in and instantly squeezed the air out again. It was not a laugh coming from the bottom of his stomach, as Buddha had taught him. It was a hollow laugh forced out of his frightened heart. So it sounded like nothing more than an ordinary bark. Woof, woof. The kookaburras looked at him in surprise. He is barking. He is barking like a dog. What else can you do? Can you lift your leg and pee? Can you lick your bottom? Can you growl? Yes, I can. The kookaburras burst into laughter. He's a dog with a sore throat. No, he's not a dog and he's not a bird. He can only be a, a dirt or a bog. Hang on, I know what he is. He's a kookaburra. I'm not a kookaburra. I'm a kookaburra. Prove it to us. Prove to us that you are a bird. Spread your wings and fly. We have not seen you flying yet. You're always walking on the ground. You don't know how to fly, do you? Through the thick tears, Pirate glanced at the farmhouse. He wished Stelzer would wake up and rescue him, but she was sound asleep on her couch, and there was no sign of either Ajax or Hoover. He closed his eyes, wishing the naughty kookaburras would simply disappear. The kookaburras stuck their heads together. Pirate heard them whispering, but could not understand a word they said. Every now and then, one kookaburra turned its head towards him and chuckled. Finally, the big one said, We will teach you flying. Really? Pirate opened his eyes. You will fly faster than a rocket to the moon. Hold on to my back. I'll take you up the gum tree. Pirate's knees were trembling as the kookaburras jostled him to the very tip of the highest branch. Well, the big one said, the expression in his face becoming very serious. It's easy once you're up in the air. 
All you do is keep your balance and you'll be right. The most important thing, though, is the takeoff. Pay attention. You must do what I tell you. Pirate tried hard to hide his fear. He didn't want the kookaburras to see how scared he was. Put the tip of your right wing in your beak, said the big one. Pirate did so. And now put your left foot in your beak. Pirate looked stupid as he now tried to keep his balance with a wing and a foot in his beak. He was just about to topple over when all of a sudden the big one gave him a push. Enjoy your flight! All the kookaburras screamed and squealed and cheered as Pirate fell like a heavy rock towards the ground far underneath him. He screamed, helplessly flapping his wings, his legs desperately kicking the air. Alarmed by his cry, Stelzer came running, barking furiously at the kookaburras. Leave him alone. He's still a baby. He can't defend himself. Shame on you. Watch out or he'll land on your snout. Stelzer ran as fast as an old dog could run. Pirate, don't fret. I'll help you. I've got him shouted Ajax suddenly from behind. Like a spring, he jumped onto Stelzer's back and catapulted himself in a giant leap into the air towards Pirate. Just as gravity began to force him back to the ground, he grabbed Pirate as if catching a flying ball. Holding him firmly but carefully between his teeth, he came back on his hind legs, then on his front legs, making sure Pirate had a soft landing and wouldn't get hurt. The kookaburras in the tree had stopped their laughter and watched in amazement. Count yourself lucky that nothing happened to Pirate, Steltzer barked at them. Now get out of my sight. Oh, what a drama. But I'm sure Stelzi, Ajak, Hoover and Buddha will do the right thing in the next episode and help Pirate in his struggle. That was episode 10 of the audiobook Pirate the Barking Kookaburra. If you can't wait another four weeks for chapter 11, you have the opportunity to actually purchase the audiobook as a whole. You will find more information on the website www bubenberg.com Pirate the Barking Kookaburra is also available as ebook and paperback. The website again www.bubenberg.com And that's it for today. Thanks for having me in your ear. You find Top Dog Podcast everywhere on the net or on your favorite podcast portal. And remember to leave a comment that will alert others that we exist. You can also write to us if you wish, adrian at topdog.space or visit our website www.topdog.space where you find many more episodes. I am Adrian Pitzko. Bye for now. Go well.